for the privilege to join you once again. I think it has been about four years since uh, Reverend Ramirez and myself have been here. That silly pandemic thing to begin with and then some restrictions of border crossings and so on. And, and, uh, and then, of course, two years ago, I had that serious car accident, which uh, was a head-on collision in which I'm still recovering from with my leg and my hand. I'm thankful that Reverend Nivers was uh, able to lead most of the service because I have a difficulty even standing for a great length of time. Uh, and uh, this was something a little more recent, uh, a kitchen incident, uh, a, a battle with the mandolin slicer and the slicer one. Um, but so I am not going to be shaking hands because this hand is no good for shaking. This hand is no good for shaking either. But uh, I will be greeting you in the fellowship hall after the service has begun. You are in for a real treat this morning in terms of scriptural um, uh, reflections. As Pastor Jose and myself were discussing last night and coordinating what we were going to be talking about a little bit, I mentioned, or he mentioned to me that he was going to be doing his presentation based on Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 13. Look in your bulletins and you will see that that's precisely what I'm going to be preaching on this morning. In God's providence, it seems that the Lord would like for us to reflect on those verses as a part of our uh, teaching and preaching ministry here this morning. And I'm very delighted to see how God works in that way. I am also going to be making reference to Belgian Confession Article 27. And I'm not going to be reading through that article altogether right now. I will be reading portions of that throughout the message. But I would invite you to just sort of keep your fingers or keep your um, uh, Trinity Psalter hymnals, the maroon book, open to page 865, where that article will be found and we'll be able to uh, reflect on that at different portions of the message that we have before us. I would invite you to turn then to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, where I will read from verses 4 to 16. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Paul, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, writes the following. I, therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Beloved congregation and our Lord Jesus Christ, if you were to reflect on what is the church, that's what we're going to be concentrating our attention on this morning. What is the church? And if I was to ask each one of you to give me a, a definition of the church, I'm guessing that there will be a different angle of a definition of what the church of Jesus Christ is all about from each one of us here present. We all will have experienced church in a different way and see church as in a different function and, and all of these functions and, and aspects of the church come from your understanding of the scriptures teaching about that. The fact is that the church is very much like a multifaceted diamond. If you look at a, a diamond in the rough, you'll see that when you turn it, every time you turn it, it looks a little bit different again. It looks a little bit <clears throat> different from a different angle that you have it. So what do you think of when you think of the church? Do you think of the church as perhaps something like a social club where we gather together twice each Sunday to be able to catch up on the latest that's happening throughout the week and to be able to talk about what the sermon was about and, and what was happening in, in the catechism classes and being able to social, socialize. That's a part of, of what the church is. Is it perhaps a school? Do you see it as a school in which there is a teaching taking place both from the pulpit on, on the services that are here and, uh, and, and, and a place where, where the young the youth groups gather together, where you have your Bible studies, where you have your catechism classes in the summertime, perhaps a vacation Bible school or summer, summer evangelism program. It may be a teaching institution. It is that. Is it perhaps in your experience very much like a hospital, spiritual hospital? where you go through struggles and you know that you have mature brothers and sisters in Christ, you have the pastor, you have the elders who are able to gather around you to pray with you, to encourage you. That's a part of what the church is all about. Is it like a service station? Particularly on Sundays where you say, well, here I am, I'm going to be getting together with the members of the church twice on Sunday to to hear and to, and to be filled up and tanked up so that I have something to go on through the rest of this week and something to reflect on as I, I go through my daily activities throughout the week. It's that too. Is it perhaps a counseling center where you are going through spiritual struggles or if you are going through some emotional difficulties and you are looking to the pastor for counseling or the elder or a mature member of the congregation that is able to counsel you through that too. 
Sometimes it can be like a smorgasbord where you can see many different aspects of what the church is all about. A book was written some time ago by an author by the name of Paul Minier. It's called Images of the Church in the New Testament. And in this book, it, it, it reflects on 96 different images of the church. The church that Jesus Christ instituted and of which he is the head of the church is a marvelous institution that only God could have created. And he did through his son, Jesus Christ. All of these things can likely be pulled together and you, if you look in your insert in the bulletin, you'll see the outline for the message here and the theme of this message which identifies, defines, the church as the body of Christ which works together to promote the kingdom of God. The body of Christ which works together to promote the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is at work in our world today. And the church is the agent that God has instituted and established in order to administer that kingdom of God which is happening, which, which we are part in our world today. So, I want to look with you at various passages from the Belgian Confession, Article 27, the Holy Catholic Church, and at verses 11 and 12 and 13 respectively. With verse 11, I want to look at the work plan of the church. With verse 12, I want to look with you at the provision for the church, and in verse 13, the goal of the church. Let's look first of all at verse 11, the work plan for the church, but I want to reflect first of all on the church in perspective as we see that presented to us in verses 1 through 6, especially of this chapter that Paul writes to the Ephesians. How is the church supposed to? To function. Where does the idea of church come from? Jesus Christ is at the very center of history. We look at what happened in our world since the creation 6,000 years ago when sin came into the world and broke the relationship between Adam and Eve and God and, and ruined all kinds of relationships. But God was not satisfied to leave that sin in a destructive format, he sent his son to come to take the punishment for that sin in an order that we might once again have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, the groom of which the church is the bride. The New Testament, the Old Testament picks up on a lot of things about the church as it was formed in the Old Testament through the people of Israel. In the New Testament, we come to that time in which the Pentecost comes and God's Holy Spirit comes onto the church and the New Testament church lances, lunges forward into different parts. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, we have the beautiful confession of Peter where we read that Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock, that is the confession of Jesus, of, of Peter, in which he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. On this confession, 
I will build my church. And that sets the stage for the beginning of the New Testament phase of the church of Jesus Christ, of which you and I are a part today. And that church spreads. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that it spreads through Palestine, through Asia, through all the, the region at that time, throughout Rome and so on. And we get glimpses of what the church is supposed to look at, look like when we read different portions of how the church develops in the different church planting occasions in the book of Acts and in the letters that Paul writes to these churches as he writes the 13 letters that he writes to the churches as a part of that. In the opening verses here of chapter 4, Paul is reminding the church in Ephesus to live up to the expectations that God has for the church of Jesus Christ. And amongst those expectations are specific characteristics. And one of the marks of that is the unity that we find in the church. We read in verses 3 to 5 especially about that. When we read there, that there is one body, or we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, but there is one body and one Spirit, verse 4, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We believe that in the confession that we profess. In the Belgian Confession, for instance, in Article 27, Looking at the first two paragraphs there, first of all, where we read this. We believe and confess one single Catholic or universal church, a holy congregation and gathering of true Christian believers, awaiting their entire salvation in Christ Jesus, being washed by his blood and sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. The church has existed from the beginning of the world until the end, and as, as appears from the fact that Christ is eternal king who cannot be without subjects. The church is one. Now Paul addresses this more clearly as he moves into writing verses 7 through 10, where we see the work of the church, the work of Christ in this church. Listen to what he says in verses 7 and 8. There we read, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And we're introduced there to the ascension of Jesus Christ. Where is Christ the head of the church today. He ascended to heaven and sits, as we remember that in the Apostles' Creed, right? At the right hand of God the Father Almighty, with all of the authority that he exerts over you and me as disciples of Jesus Christ, as members of the body of Christ. Now, Paul is quoting from verse, some verses in Psalm 68 here. Now, let's, if we turn back to Psalm 68, we know that here the David is writing about the attacks of the enemy. So the church is not without its challenges. 
we experience attacks as disciples, as individual believers. We experience attacks as a church, as an institution. In verse 1 of Psalm 68, we read, May God arise and may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. Verse 11 and 12. The Lord announced the word, kings and armies flee in haste. Verse 14, when the army almighty scattered the kings in the land like snow fallen on Zalman. And then in verse 18 he says, he writes, when you ascended on high, you led captives in your train and you received gifts from men. And you get a picture of a military leader leading an army into battle. And that's exactly what we are dealing with in the church of Jesus Christ. And the mission of the church of Jesus Christ is for us to engage actively in that battle. Missionaries are sent out to different parts of the world. But many times missionaries are sent out right in our own communities where we have opportunity as members of the congregation to engage in that battle that we are a part of. In verses 24 and 25 of chapter 68, Psalm, we read something very interesting as well. Your procession has come into view, O God, the procession of my God and King into the sanctuary. In front are the singers, after them the musicians, with them are maidens playing tambourines. We get a picture of a victorious procession in this battle because the church under the direction of its master, Jesus Christ, is victorious in this battle. Oh, we lose our battles from here, from time to time, here in our little skirmishes on this side of heaven. But the beauty of it is that we know that when that time comes, read Revelation 21 and 22, the enemy, Satan, at the helm of the battle of forces against the church, will be destroyed. And that's what we have to look forward to. There's a tribute that is spoken of here. It's as if, it's as if Jesus Christ being refer, referred to here in this ascension story in Psalm 68 already has his, as it were, his trophies of war. When a king would go out into battle and conquer his enemies, he would bring back trophies of his war. He would bring back all the spoils of war from the enemy. What are the spoils of war, or perhaps better said, who are the spoils of war in the spiritual battle that Christ is leading as he brings home his trophies? They are you and me. You and I are the spoils that Jesus Christ going out and retrieving us from the, from the power of Satan and once again bringing them back under his authority and his control by his electing love for us and forgiving us our sins, freeing us from the evil one. We are the trophies of that war. Now, it's interesting that in Psalm 68, verse 18, David says, and he that is in reference to Jesus Christ, thinking forward, received gifts from men, from men. But Paul, quoting that verse, says, and he gave gifts to men. Is Paul in error in what he is writing in 
quoting this verse? Not at all. Paul is taking this verse from Psalm 68, which is before Jesus Christ, bringing it to its logical conclusion. We might say redemptive historical conclusion and that those trophies that Jesus Christ receives, takes from Satan, now are given to the church of Jesus Christ to do the work that needs to be done. And he gave gifts. The reference is the disciples of Jesus Christ, leaders, Pastors, elders, office bearers, teachers, individual disciples, believers given to the church to do the work, the great work that needs to be accomplished. And that's what we see happening here because now we need to hang on and see what's, what Paul is going to lead on to now when in verse 11 he's we have an opportunity to reflect on the gifts, these gifts that are given to the church. In verse 11, Paul says that it was he who gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and some to be teachers. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And oftentimes when we think about the gifts of the Spirit, we think about abilities and, and different aspects of, of, of different gifts that, that we are given in order to be able to use. But here he's talking about people. Disciples, human beings whom God has called to these various different functions and list of Christ's captives. So we then become Christ's gift to the church. And it's important for us to be able to see how that works out. This is the work plan. God rescuing us from the thresholds of Satan from the stronghold of Satan, and giving us to the church to do our work. That's the work plan. But how does God provide for the church? We are not left empty-handed in the work that God has called us to. God's provision for the church comes to us in verse 12. In verse 12, we read that he does this, and these are given to the church, in order to equip the saints for the work of ministries, for building up the body of Christ. For building up the body of Christ. Pastors and elders and deacons are not called on to be the only ones at work in the church. As though parishioners can fold their arms and say, well, sure glad that God instituted the office bearers in the church to do the work. Not at all. That was never the design of Jesus Christ for the work of ministry in the church of Jesus Christ. God calls each one of us to be involved in an area of ministry within the church of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 4 verse 10, Peter reflects on this as well. And he says this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Use the gifts that God has given to you, the talents. You sing well, use it. You are a people person, make some visits. Whatever gift or strength you have in character, use that not for yourself, but for the building up of the church of Jesus Christ and for the extension of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We just went through last Tuesday 
Reformation Day. Had an opportunity, perhaps last Sunday and throughout this week, to reflect on the, on the, on the importance of that event. Now, we often think of the event of the Reformation in the five solas, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in scriptures alone, on the basis of the scriptures alone, to God alone be the glory in all of this. But we often miss out on one more aspect of the solas of the Reformation, of the benchmark teachings of the Reformation, that is the priesthood of all believers. At the time of the Reformation, the focus was indeed on the hierarchy of the church, the Pope, the Archbishop, the priests, or the bishop, and then the priests, and then the laity. It was all that kind of a hierarchical, and a hierarchy was the one that was expected to do all of the activities and things that needed, the laity, the people that just would come to church, receive the blessings, and go again back home. They didn't need to be involved. Reformation studied the scriptures and said, no, that's not the way the church was intended to be. God expects the church to work as a team with every member doing his or her part. And that's what God's call is to the church of Jesus Christ. When Paul uses the word equip in this verse, it's the same word that Matthew and Mark use when he talks about the disciples the fishermen who became disciples were mending their nets. That's the same word that's used here. Equipping, getting their nets ready, getting their nets ready for service to be used because the nets with a big hole in it, if you're a fisherman, you know that a net with a hole in it, you're going to lose that walleye, aren't you? They need to be mended. They need to be worked on in order to be used. And such is the church of Jesus Christ. So we look at this and then we know that we are called upon to be in proper condition. To be mended, to be prepared, to be equipped for service, for ministry in the church of Jesus Christ. Each one of us. In our own areas. And that's why when we think this through, we see some of the different ministries in the church that are in place in order to do just that. These are ministries. By the way, just as an aside, they're not programs. The government has programs in our society for different things. The municipality may have different programs. There may be various different programs in the community. The church doesn't have programs. The church has ministries. To the end of ministering to the heart and the soul of those who come, they come into contact with. That's the church with its various different ministries. And we are called upon to address the spiritual welfare of the members of the church and members of the community in which we find ourselves as well. And it's important for us to take advantage of these ministries in the church of Jesus Christ. And we see this happening particularly as parents then see that there is a support role in the home. They have the primary responsibility of raising their children to become faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. 
finding ways in which they also can be engaged in the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ, but with the support of the church around them and with the support of the Christian school community that becomes a part of that as well, that three-legged stool, church, school, home, headed up by the parents in the home. That's what this is all about. And the church has an important role as a part of the development on the nurturing of the covenant children who are part of the church of Jesus Christ. When we present our children for baptism, one of the questions that we are asked is, will you do all in your power to instruct your children in these aforesaid doctrines? I think there's a different, I, I don't have that in front of me right now. That's, that's the old terms. In these doctrines that we have just spoken about, are you prepared to raise your children in these teachings? And we promise that we will do so. That's a part of what we see happening as a responsibility as parents, but as the church of Jesus Christ as well. And this ministry leads to the growth of the church. Everyone being involved. Whether that is comforting those who are sick, or teaching, or neighborhood evangelism, track distribution, prayer, giving, all of these are aspects in which we can be involved. God uses women for specific aspects of ministries that he has called them to, to do ministry to other women in their Bible studies that they have. God calls men to specific aspects of ministry, to minister to men in their aspects, and to be the official office bearers within the congregations. God calls young people to do ministry amongst young people. God calls children. Oh, children. Put your little green flag up and listen to this one, this little antenna. You too are a part of the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. Wherever you go when you are playing with your friends, you're called upon to be a living witness and a living testimony, to give an opportunity to talk about Jesus Christ, if they ask you, why do you do things differently than we do in our home and, and they're not Christians than you are, you can tell them, well, because in our home we believe that Jesus Christ is at the center and I have to do and follow as a disciple of Jesus Christ what he says. All of us involved within that. And the more a church is seeing its members involved, the greater the spiritual growth of the church will be. One of the Latin American theologians that I was influenced greatly by in my youth and still do read him quite a bit is a theologian by the name of René Padilla, an Ecuadorian. Ecuadorian theologian involved in church growth, involved in teaching the fact that ministry in the church is not just the preaching of the word of God but also doing diaconal ministry side by side, integral ministry, holistic ministry in the church, but one of the things that he talked about was defining the church as it grows. And he insisted that you count, you, you calculate or you look at, or you engage how the church grows, not so much by the numbers that are present, but by how many members of that church are engaged in ministries. That's a real sign of spiritual maturity in the church. Of Jesus Christ. How many members percentage-wise are engaged 
in ministries in the church or within the community, but on the behalf of Jesus Christ. That's a measure of the health of the church. God's provision for the church through his son, Jesus Christ, using each and every one of us for that. Verse 12, verse 13. What is God's goal? Well, it's clear as we look at verses 13, 14, and 15 then that the goal of the church is maturity. Maturity. We look at the Article 27, and I neglected to read, by the way, uh, paragraphs 3 and 4 for the previous point yet. So I'm just going to go back there. And this holy church, preserved by God against the rage of the whole world, even though for a time it may appear very small in the eyes of men, as though it were snuffed out, for example, during the very dangerous time of Ahab, the Lord preserved for him 7,000 men who did not bend their knees to Baal. Again, a reminder how God uses these people to maintain the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ engaged in a battle. Now, the last paragraph of Article 27 reminds us about the goal of the church. And so this holy church is not confined or bound, or limited to a certain place or a certain persons, it is spread and dispersed throughout the entire world. Though still joined and united in heart and will and one and the same spirit by the power of faith. Spread and dispersed throughout the entire world. By God's grace, we as a federation of churches have missionaries that are indeed doing that work of missions. I was reflecting in preparation for this message on the statistics that are presented in our urcna.org website. By God's grace, in our federation, we have 15 foreign missionaries working on our behalf, serving on our behalf, ministering on our behalf. In seven different countries, Costa Rica, Ecuador, Romania, Honduras, Turkey, Italy, Mexico. In home missions, right here in North America, in Canada and the US, 19 missionaries doing church planting and prison ministries. Diaconal ministry is continuing to go on, particularly under the helm and under the name of the Reformed Mission Services under Rob Brinks, who leads work groups and service projects both in North America and throughout the world, doing community outreach and disaster response and evangelism and ministry development in North America and abroad. By God's grace, we are alive as a united Reformed Church. And each one of us is called upon to support that kind of a ministry. Why? For what goal? To what end? To the end of maturity. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. We look at this and we see that this is what God is looking for. He's not just looking for warm bodies in the church. He's work, looking towards a maturity in the church of Jesus Christ. The ministry of mints is dedicated specifically to that. Preparing Christian leaders for Christian ministry. Preparing Christian leaders for ministry. That's what mints is all about. That's only one small angle, avenue of ministry that's going on throughout the world in the United Reformed Churches. By God's grace, this is happening. We look at this, 
and we begin to understand what Paul is talking about in verse 14. Listen to what he says in verse 14. Why? What maturity? To what end? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We are called upon to be childlike in our own discipleship growth. Now, that doesn't seem to make sense. But you see, Paul is not saying that we need to be childish. There is a great difference between being childish and being childlike. To be childish is what he describes in verse 14, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by, being, by human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful ways, and so on. It, it's being fickle and unstable and naive and undiscerning. That's being childish. God calls the church for us to be childlike, trusting, believing, being humble, questioning because you want to know more, hungry. But child isn't always hungry. Not self-dependent, but teachable, willing to be molded, knowing that we have much more that we need to learn. Every child knows that. We must be childlike and receive the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ like a child. And that's what we see as we come to look at what is it that we must mature from? We are to be matured from that which is childish. Those first steps of faith of the disciple of Jesus Christ are still childish steps. They're still learning. But that's where we begin. As with our families, we begin with our children. So in discipleship and, and, and training and, and missions and so on, we begin with a new believer in Jesus Christ. But what do we mature towards? And that brings us to verse 15. Verse 15 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, and that is unto Christ. That's our goal. He is our example. He is the one that we want to be like. We will never attain that on this side of heaven. Whether Jesus Christ comes first or, or whether we die to, before we go to heaven, but on this earth, we will never attain fully to that, but we are called upon to work towards that. That's part of the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. Not only to gather in new disciples, that's an important part, but also to develop these disciples into more and more mature disciples of Jesus Christ. Through formal studies and seminary programs like Mintz is doing and the institutions of learning that we have here in the United States as well, but also through the daily walking with them in their day-to-day -day life. That's the important part, and we can't do that alone. We do that together as the church of Jesus Christ. You as a congregation has, have come alongside, both will say and myself, since 2005. We've been 18 years on this road together as the U.S. Partner Church for our ministry. Jose and I and the HCM, the Hispanic Christian Committee, the ministry committee is, in, is, is, is thankful for the efforts that has been made 
by you as a congregation, by the leadership as participating in some of the plans and developments that we have been able to make towards that. And we're grateful for that. We need to work together as a church, as a body of Christ. Because after all, that's how we would define the church, isn't it? The body of Christ, which works together to promote the kingdom of God. And then for final words in verse 16, concluding. Jesus Christ, identified in verse 15, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. There's that word equipped again. Mended, repaired, pulled together, equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds, builds itself up in love. Beloved congregation, may you see that fresh once again today as your call as a congregation participating in the mission of the church of Jesus Christ right here in your own community. Many opportunities for missions. In the state of Michigan, various mission projects. In the United States and in Canada, throughout beyond the borders of North America, engaging, engaging, engaging every one of us, finding where we can fit in to the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to hear of the work of Jesus Christ. And in many ways, what a burden it is for us to hear about the work that you have called us to, to be involved in this ministry of the work of Jesus Christ. But Father, how that burden is lifted when we know that we are not alone. Neither one of us individually is alone. We have those around us as a part of the body of Jesus Christ. Even the body of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, is not alone because we know that we have our head, Jesus Christ himself, to whom we can look. And we have God's Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit come down to give us what we stand in need of, to empower us to do the work that we need to do we feel so inadequate, and we are in and of ourselves. But you are fully adequate, Father, through your spirit. And we pray that you would help us to be re reflective of that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.